once we dig really, really deep into the discussion about faith and actually take all our preconceived misconceptions and actually look at the sources and find out what the Torah actually says about faith, we find things that we wouldn't have imagined uh, were there beforehand. Uh, and I, I think uh, today we're going to, it's fine, we're going to discuss areas of philosophy that are so troubling and so difficult to understand and cause so many people to have crises of faith and to ask questions. Uh, and we'll see how if you actually navigate the process of simple to more complex faith and deepening your faith, you'll actually find that the answers are right there, right there in front of you. And they make a lot of sense, and it makes an abundance of sense. And you'll also understand why some people will forever remain troubled by the same questions, and that's just the reflection of where they are in their journey of faith. Remarkable. Let's start with the basics. You know, what's the most basic, simple level of faith? And by the way, the basic levels of faith is not just what we call Jewish faith or the responsibility of emunah, of knowing what, you know, as a Jew, what, what's demanded of me as a Jew. The basic levels of faith are for everyone, Jews and non-Jews alike. In fact, if you look at the seven Noahide mitzvahs, the seven mitzvahs that are universal, well, several of them are about faith. Well, Gentiles, what do they have about faith? Well, yeah, they have responsibility to faith as well. Faith is not just for us. But the simplistic levels of faith are for everyone. The more advanced levels of faith are for us. So what's the most simple level of faith? What's the basics? The basics is what I call uh, voter registration faith. When you fill out your voter registration card, they ask you, are you a Latino? Are you a Native American? Are you a Caucasian? Are you, right? That's what they ask. Are you Asian? You know, are, are you an atheist? Are you a believer? That's the simple levels of faith. And that's for everyone. Uh, and that can be on multiple levels. Like you can have faith because you went to synagogue or you went to church or you went to mosque or you went to some sort of religious instruction that gave you that. And it can be based upon a certain uh, tradition, basic levels of faith. Lowest level, simple faith. Dad said there's a God, never questioned it, never thought twice about it. You check the box. And then there's a deeper level of faith, level of faith. And that would be where you have some evidence, where you actually investigated, you read some books about the issue, you scoured the topic logically, like you would do other areas of your life. You asked questions, you evaluated uh, with reason and with logic the likelihood of. God existing versus God not existing. And that, by the way, is also for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews, because uh, your faith should be based upon a certain uh, foundation of reason and logic. We even find in the Talmud dialogue between the great rabbis and the, their contemporaries, their non-Jewish contemporaries. And they're having discussions with them. And they say, hey, you know, why does God do this? Or according to your understanding of God, you know, that question. means this is something that's not just demanded of Jews. Um, it's demanded of Jews, of course. Uh, we're told additionally we have to have sufficient understanding of the reasonings and the logic behind faith to be able to engage in a debate, in polemics, with someone who is a heretic. 
So the basis level, the basic level of faith, we say, is to, to have uh, either a belief based upon tradition, uh, alternatively, on a higher level, uh, an understanding, a logic of a, a, a certain, uh, a certain uh, agreement, belief in the idea of a creator. When we, ma- we mentioned uh, Esau, right? If you looked at Esau, and if you were to isolate him and you say, is Esau a man of faith or not? It's a tricky question. Esau. Esau. We read about him last week in the Parsha, right? Last week, and we're, we're, he's the villain of this week's Parsha, right? Spoiler alert. Huh? That's right. So we meet him again. He comes back with a horde, 400 men. And he encounters Jacob once more many years after Jacob escaped from him. So Esau, was he a man of faith or not? So simply you would say, no, this is Esau. He's the wicked guy. But in truth, even Esau had this level of faith. Even Esau was someone that if you were to ask him, do you believe in God or not, he would say yes. So what's the difference between Jacob and Esau? What's the difference between the Gentile faith and the Jewish faith? difference is, is that Esau, his faith resided in his mind. You had to ask him, do you have faith, to find out if he had faith or not. Jacob, you didn't have to ask him anything. You look at his behavior. You look how he acts, how he talks, how he speaks, how he thinks. All that, his life, is a reflection of his faith. Esau, you would ask him and say, yes, I'm a man of faith. But if you didn't ask him, and you just were to scrutinize his behavior, you would just follow him around with a camera and say, okay, well, let's see how this man behaves. Well, episodes of rape, episodes of murder, plunder, we're told. This is a man of faith? Clearly not. Esau, do you have faith? Oh, yeah, sure, certainly. The Gentile faith, allows for there to be a conflict between someone's mind and someone's behavior. It's possible for someone to have faith, to have ethics, theoretical ethics, but in practice, to be very unethical. But that's only possible for Gentile faith. What's demanded of Jacob, or the example that Jacob set, and what's demanded of, uh, uh, from us, is to not have merely faith that resides in the mind, rather the faith emanates into our body. Faith permeates our life. Where every action, every thought, every, uh, every, every speech is dominated by this principle. That's the much higher level of faith. That's what we call the Jewish faith, Jewish faith. Where the idea of God is not just something theoretical, it's something that's real. It's a reality in our life and it's manifest in our behavior. When you look at someone who behaves out of faith, you don't need to ask them to have faith. You don't need to make the survey, the uh, voter ID survey. You don't need to ask them. You, you know it. It's clear. It's plain. It's evident. It's, everyone knows that. You just look at him. We find uh, a verse that says that when the nations of the land, they look at you, right? they see that you're a man of faith. They don't have to ask. You don't have to have, you don't have, to have some sort of uh, census. You see, when you look at a Jew, 
the Jew ought to be someone that the faith is readily apparent in him. Their behavior is different. And if we were to present this in a different way, faith in the Jewish understanding, the Jewish practice of the meaning of what we call emunah, is when someone acts in a way that's different than they would have acted otherwise. You know that China exists. Maybe you were there, and then you have evidence, or you believe it because it's tradition, it doesn't seem logical that for it to not exist. But does that govern your behavior? Do you say, oh, China exists, I'm not going to do this, or China exists, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I will do that. Why not? Because that has nothing to do with anything. It's not behavior-oriented. The fact that China exists doesn't add in any way govern how I behave. For Gentiles, it's possible the fact that God exists, it doesn't govern your behavior. For Esau, God exists, most certainly. What does that have to do with how I behave? There's a gap between this piece of knowledge and how you behave. The Jewish faith cannot be like that. The Jewish faith is, is that this principle, this intellectual principle, governs behavior. So the fact that God exists matters and is reflected in your behavior. You act differently. Right? We give charity. Why do we give charity? If you think about charity, it's illogical to do it. It's illogical. It's not logical. It's not logical for me to take money, which is valuable, worked hard for, and give it to someone else that I don't know. It's not logical. I lose money. I gain nothing tangible in return. The reason why we give charity is an example of because God exists. <coughs> now, some people, this is a little side note, some people might give charity because they get something out of it. There's a big sign. You know, there's recognition. You know, so that's an example of someone giving but really taking because they're not actually giving because they're getting more than they're giving. You know, if, if I get all the honor of the world and I only have to pay $10,000 for it, well, that's, that's, that's cheap. So we wouldn't call that staka. If you look at the Rambam, Maimonides, when he tells what staka is, staka is you give anonymously. Well, why would someone give anonymously, right? You're, you're giving. And that's an act that we do because God existed. God is, exists. If God didn't exist... Indeed, it would be illogical to give. That's an example of the Jewish mindset. You know, we refrain from doing certain things on Shabbat. We do do certain things during the week, which we have a kosher restaurant across the street. Why would someone go to eat food that it's the same food, it's just more expensive? That's it. Just more expensive and slightly less tasty. <laughs> Why would someone do that? It doesn't make any sense, right? You got two steaks. They look identical. One's a little bit better and a little cheaper. It's much more logical to eat that one and that restaurant. It's, it, it's logical. Why would someone eat kosher? Why? It doesn't make sense. That's an example of behaving in a way that's governed by your faith. That's the Jewish, that, that's the Jewish faith. And example after example that every mitzvah, every mitzvah that we do is an example of us living away, behaving in a way of faith. That's the third level of faith. What else is there? We have the Jewish level of faith. We're behaving out of faith. 
How, is there anything greater than that? Is there anything more than that? Is there any higher levels we could go to? Where else could we ascend to? We were behaving out of faith. We're like Jacob, right? We're Jews. We eat kosher, we observe Shabbat, and we do this, we do that, we everything. Give charity, faith, 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 faith. Where else is there to go? The answer is like this. Yes. God is reality in our lives. We behave in a way that's different than we would have behaved had this reality not existed. However, how real is it really? When we pray, are we really talking to God? Or are we mumbling words in a foreign language? Which one is it? In funny clothes, in a funny room. Which one is it? Which one is it? Well, we're praying because we're talking to God. Rabbi, you know that. You know why we pray. Praying is talking to God. But is it really talking to God? Really? Do you really feel the same way that you would feel if you're talking to the president? Well, you're talking to God is much more powerful than the president, of course. Okay, well, let's just let's simplify it. Do you really feel like you're talking to the president? Are you organized in your thoughts? Is your mind all there? I don't know. For me, it isn't. So while someone may behave in a way that reflects their faith, it might not be actually really real. And it may may be partially real, 70% real, 42% real. For the fact that it's real, that governs your behavior. Okay, but how do we make sure that it's 100% real? Well, there's lots of levels of faith, all the way from 1% to 100%. And treading that line, right? Going down that path is, is a whole lifetime of faith building. And how do you build your faith? Well, mitzvahs, on one hand, are a reflection of faith. On the other hand, they are a boosting of faith. So as we grow and develop as Jews, this reality becomes more real to us. It's true, it always was true, but we really feel more true in it. Talmud describes prayer as work in the heart. Sounds like an open-heart surgery, right? You're working on the heart. <coughs> Laparoscopically. What does it mean, work in the heart? It, exactly. It's, it's convincing yourself or living or trying to align this reality with what you actually feel. And I tell you, I gave you guys the stories here. I had a, a friend in high school that wore a tie to prayer, and to me it was funny and bizarre. And, and I asked him, so why are you doing that? He says, well, if you were talking to the president, would you not wear a tie? And he's absolutely right. The difference is that I wasn't talking to the president. Yeah, I, I, yeah of course, I was talking to God, but I, it wasn't real. I wasn't talking to the president. I was talking to God, but in kind of a religious way, in a kind of like a ritualistic way, not a real way. I told you guys a story. I'll say it again. It's a very impactful story. I was there uh, with my grandfather towards the end of his life, and I was there overnight, and he woke up in the middle of the night repeatedly because he asked me, is it time to pray yet? I said, no, it's only 2.30 in the morning. Prayer doesn't start for five and a half hours or four and a half hours. Go back to sleep. Half hour later, he wakes up again. Is it time to pray yet? I said, no, Saba, go back to sleep. Half an hour later, he's up again. 
I'm going to wait up. And he sits like this with his hands in fists like this on his knees, all dressed and ready to go like a kid the day before a trip to Disneyland. Just imagine, what would your sleep, sleep be like if you had a 7 a.m. in the White House? What would your sleep be like? What, what would it be like? Would you be able to fall asleep? Would you be able to sleep for a long time? Would you wake up and say, oh, is it time? Did I miss, my, did I miss it? That's what it would be like, right? You'd be terrified to miss it. You wake up at 3.19, try to go back to sleep, have a hard time going back to sleep. That's what it's really like when someone really believes they're talking to God. And to my grandfather, to him, prayer was really talking to the almighty creator of heaven and earth. How could you sleep at night? How could you not wake up and say, is it time yet? Is it time yet? I'm staying up. I'm going to wait. I'm just going to get dressed and wait. That's what it's real. That's the transformation. That is a result of someone living with God and growing and doing that work in the heart over 90 years. And 90 years later, he's really talking to God. That's the product of a whole lifetime of mitzvah seriously. That's what it looks like. And the higher we climb this ladder, the more real God gets with us, the more we change our character. If you really believed in God, really, if it was real, it was your reality, if that's, that's true, you wouldn't have arrogance. How can you have arrogance? Everything you have is from God. You wouldn't be stingy. How could you be stingy when the Almighty tells you to give charity? You wouldn't be impatient because you know that everything comes from God. You wouldn't get angry. Character, character imperfections only arise in a human that doesn't have God as a reality in their lives. So the result of such a life is that not only do you have faith, but you have everything alongside faith with regards to Relationship with God and relationship with other people. You have everything. But there's more. We have four levels of faith. We got the two simple Gentile levels of faith. Everyone has to have that. A Jew lives differently. And then this amazing Jews that actually make it real. It's alive. Well, what else is there? What else is there? So it's a much, much higher level. What world are we living in? What do we see? What do we encounter? What realities govern our world? So for us, we start off life, everyone starts off life, physical, that's it. That's the only world that exists. As we develop, we find emotions, and hopefully we find the spirit, the idea of our neshama, of our soul. This delicate, very exceedingly delicate, but enormously powerful quality that we have within ourselves and we nurture that side of ourselves. And by suppressing our physical, we, as a result, empower our spiritual. And the great people, or someone not only have that as a reality, but their reality of their spiritual is as real as the reality of their physical. Par. Even. What do I see when I see someone? Do I see their body? Yeah, I see their body. 
What does someone like this see? They see their body and their soul as much as their body. What world are we living in? The physical world, of course. What world are they living in? The spiritual world as well. Let me give you guys an example of this level. Rabbi Yochanan Metzakai, the great scholar, the great rabbi, the great leader of the Jewish people, the great voice of reason, if you will, the great visionary at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, right? the rabbi of Jerusalem. He's on his deathbed, and his students come in. And the students say to him, and he starts crying. They say, why are you crying? And he tells them, if I was going to see a human king, and he was going to judge me, would I not be scared? Oh, certainly I would be scared. But why would you be scared of a human judge? Right? Number one, today he has power. Tomorrow he's dead and powerless. Right? When he gets angry at me, his anger is temporary. When he banishes me, it's only temporary banishment. If he kills me, it's not forever. And you know what? I can bribe him. I can negotiate. I can talk to him. That's, but still, would someone not be terrified if they're going to speak to a, a king or a judge or a monarch? Have to cry for their lives? For sure. Now you're going to the Almighty. The Almighty banishes you. You're done forever. He's angry at you. That anger never subsides. His power is eternal. You can't negotiate with him. You can't bribe him. Would you not be steered? What's he describing? He's describing a world where your fear of heaven is equal to your fear of other people, of powers, of kings, of judges. And then he says a tremendous and powerful instruction. They say to him, okay, you're about to die, Rebbe. Give us a blessing. And he gives him a blessing. It doesn't make any sense. What does he tell him? He tells him, He tells his students, students of Rabbi Yochanan Zakai, let me give you a blessing. What, what could be the blessing of the deathbed of the rabbi? What, what could it possibly be? What amazing idea. He, said, he says to them, Your fear of heaven should be like your fear of man. What? <laughs> I should be. That, that, that was a downer. <laughs> How is that a powerful spiritual message to leave us with? He says to them, You know why it's powerful? Because when someone is about to sin, what do they do? Look left, look right. No one's watching, I can sin. Do they ever look up? The only reason why someone sinned is because they believe in man more than they believe in God. Your fear of heaven should be like your fear of man. There should be balance. It should be parallel. There should be par between the reality of, I see people here, God sees me. Same thing. And I shouldn't be more scared of you guys, of people, than I am of, of heaven. But there's more. What could be greater than having the reality of God equal to the reality of the physical world? What could be, what could be greater than that? Huh? What do we do? Exactly. So Rabbi Yochanan B'Zakai himself, and I told you guys the story, I'll say it again. He meets Vespasian, or Vespasian, outside the gates of Jerusalem, outside the walls of Jerusalem. 
and Jerusalem is under siege for many months already. People are dying left, right, and center inside the city, dying of starvation, dying because they went outside to forage for food and were caught by the Romans and were, uh, uh, were crucified. And Rabbi Yochanan Metzake, the leader of the Jews, he goes and he meets the station. He, he walks up to him and he greets him. Shalom Alecha Malka, peace be unto you, O king. And the emperor, the soon to be emperor, but the general tells him, I'm going to kill you twice. First of all, I'm not a king, I'm not the emperor, I'm a general. Number one. Number two, why didn't you come to me till now? So Priyokhan responds to him, Why did I call you emperor? Why did I call you king when indeed you're only a general? Because the verse says, that Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. And Lebanon is a reference to the temple, and the mighty is a reference to a king. Thus we see the temple's about to fall to you. Thus you're a king. And indeed, the postscript of the story is that the messengers came from Rome, and they said that he was nominated to be the emperor. And indeed, he left... He gives over the siege to his son Titus, and Titus is the one who, so to speak, finishes the deal. And we know the aftermath of the story, he tells him, oh, Rabbi Yochanan Zakai, wow, he was just like shocked with what happened, and he grants him a few wishes, and of course, he opts to save the rabbis and thus save what's going to comprise the future of the Jewish people. But what does this show us about Rabbi Yochanan Zakai himself? When he sees a general, what he sees, this is a general. He's wearing a general's outfit. He's got the general stars. He's not a king. He's not an emperor. But what does he see? He sees an emperor. And he calls him emperor. Why? Huh? Not, not more than that. He sees present. Because he sees an emperor. But why does he see an emperor? Because of the verse in the Torah. The verse is more real than what his eyes tell him. Your eyes are very good indication of reality. Correct? I see a table. I don't touch a table. I see it. I know it's there. I can feel it now. Also an indication of reality. Your spiritual lens, your spiritual senses also can give you an indication of reality. But to us... That's kind of fuzzy. That's not verified. That's not real. What we see and touch, that's real. Comes along Rabbi Yochanan and he turns this on its head. His eyes, his physical eyes, show him a general. His spiritual eyes show him a king. And what does he call him? Peace be unto you, O king. Shalom Aleichem Malka. This shows that it's possible for someone to have their spiritual reality transcend, be more real, right? Overpower the physical reality. To him, if you told Rabbi Yochanan Zakai, your fear of heaven should be like your fear of man, that would be a downgrading. Because his fear of heaven is more than his fear of man. Because he believed that God was watching more than there's a whole room full of people. I see a room full of people, oh, people are watching me. But that's not as impressive to him because he knows God's, you know, God, the fact that God's watching, that's more real to him. And this is the level of Rabbi Yochanan Zakai. You know, this is, uh, you know, I'll just give a little quick 
uh, disclaimer, you know, this is his students are not quite in that level. Uh, and I'll tell you guys even more. What does it say? I quoted this earlier. What does it say? It says that there are those people who are small in faith. Who are minors in faith. Who are not experts in faith. And who's that? How do you describe a katneyamono? What's the description of someone who is minor in their faith? Not developed. Undeveloped in their faith. That's someone who has food today but doesn't have food tomorrow and asks the question and asks the question what will I eat tomorrow? That's someone of limited faith of, 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 of lessened faith. Now why is that? If you have food today you don't have food tomorrow it's probably a very good idea to wonder what you're going to feed your kids tomorrow. Well the answer is if someone has the spiritual reality of the fact that the Almighty exists and that is greater, is more real to him in their eyes than the fact that humans exist. So the fact that he has no food tomorrow should not mean anything. When I see a pantry full of food, well, I'm happy, right? There's food tomorrow, right? Well, spiritually, I don't have to worry about a pantry. I know that the Almighty is taking care of me. Your dad's a billionaire, right? If your dad was a billionaire and you walked into the pantry and your physical eyes didn't see any food, would you be worried? Of course not. Dad's a billionaire. The fact that someone is okay with a pantry full of food to their physical eyes, but not okay to an empty pantry of food to the physical eyes, but spiritually being comforted by the fact that their dad's a billionaire, well, that's someone of limited faith. When someone's pantry, physical pantry, when that's more real in their eyes, right, that's more true. That, 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 that exists. That's real. More than the fact that God will take care of you, well, that's someone of limited faith. Thus, the Talmud essentially is telling us, gentlemen, right, you guys, ladies and gentlemen, you guys are men of limited faith. This advanced levels of faith that really are beyond us. Since the temple was destroyed, all you have is men of limited faith. But what it's describing is these four, four, uh, these five levels that we talked about earlier. Number one, to have a tradition of God. Number two, to have proof of God. Number three, to live the Jewish faith of God. Number four, it's becoming more real. I'm talking to the Almighty. I'm talking to the President. Number five, this reality becomes on par with the physical. Even that's limited faith. The, the, the degrees of faith that the Talmud's imagining, that the Torah tells us existed with the great leaders, that Rabbi Yochanan Mezakeh himself demonstrated, where the spiritual reality is more real than physical reality, you know, that's something remarkable. But that's beyond our grasp. Now, I want to take this in a little bit of a different direction. Okay, I want to talk about something which is a question that really every Jew has to ask, or every human really has to ask. 
Uh, and the answer is very hard for us to answer. And that's the question of what's called theodicy, or bad things happen to good people. Uh, now that's a question really of faith. Because we assume, and as Jews we know, that our God is a God of mercy. We have the Torah telling us that called Avid Rahman Avid, everything the Almighty does is for good. Everything the Almighty does is for good. And then we see things that are, at least in our minds, not good. So that's an irreconcilable conflict. God is good. God does good. God does good exclusively. Yet we see things that in our mind, in our eyes, are not good. That's a very good question. And you know what addresses this question? Well, Moshe, but the Talmud does in great detail, multiple times. Something for all. Exactly. That's that's one. And. The Talmud asks the question. Moshe, Moshe, Esther tells us, Moshe is the one who has, who has this question. And not only that, we find that Moshe asks it twice. There's two times that Moshe asks the same question. And what should be an obvious problem with that is that, Moshe, if you ask the question once, why would you ask it again? You ask the Almighty, Moshe's a prophet, he asks the Almighty a question, the Almighty gives him a response, and then Moshe asks again, and he gets a different response. So why would Moshe ask twice, and why would Moshe get different answers? It seems very bizarre. And I think if we understand the processes or the stages of faith, this all makes sense to us. And this will, might seem a little bit, we have to just, as I say, Yiddish, halt cup here. Let's look at the first time that Moshe asks um, God this question. First time is recorded in the Talmud. And this is when Moshe is going up to heaven to get the Torah. That's right. First time Moshe asks the question. Good question. First time. And Moshe sees something bizarre. He sees that the Almighty is making little crowns on top of the letters. If you open up a Torah scroll, you'll notice that on top of several letters, there's crowns. And Moshe asks the Almighty, why are you making crowns? And I don't want to get sidetracked with the story, but regardless, Moshe, uh, God tells Moshe, well, it's for Rabbi Akiva. It's for Rabbi Akiva. That's right. Because Rabbi Akiva is going to take these crowns and he's going to study these crowns and he's going to derive and deduce piles and piles of laws from every crown. That's right. But he tells him it's for Rabbi Akiva. Good question. It's for Rabbi Akiva. Yeah. Oh, so no, God tells him, there is a man who's going to come in several generations, whose name is Rabbi Akiva, and he's going to study laws based upon 
the crowns. So Moshe is so impressed that Moshe says, well, if you have such a man like this, why am I the person who you're giving the Torah through? Give the Torah through Rabbi Akiva. That's his question. Either way, there's a very lengthy dialogue. But at the end, Moshe asks the question, I want to see Rabbi Akiva's reward. Show me Rabbi Akiva's reward for all his Torah study. What's the reward for Rabbi Akiva? So the Almighty shows him that Rabbi Akiva is being tortured by the Romans and having his skin flayed off of him. That's the, that's the reward. I asked for the reward, not the punishment. So Moshe says, wait a minute. Where's the reward? This is the Torah. This is the reward. Zu Torah. Vizu Schara. Question. Bad things happen to good people. Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, that Moshe said... And the Almighty maybe even agreed, it's not clear from the answer, that Rabbi Kiva is worthy to have been the one to give us the Torah. A great person. Good person. Good person, right? And what happens? He's being tortured. Moshe asks God, why do bad things happen to good people? And I would amend the question. Why do bad things happen to great people? And I would amend it even further. Why do terrible things happen to wonderful, fantastic, great people? Good question. Legitimate question. And what's the Almighty's response? Shtok kach Allah b'machshava lefanai. Quiet, silence, so came up in my, that's the way I think. Kach Allah b'machshava lefanai. This is the way I think. Is that, is, that, is that a sufficient answer? Does that sound like a sufficient answer? Moshe is asking I think what we would agree is a fairly legitimate question. And God tells him, quiet, this is the way I think, you can't understand it. What kind of answer is that? Seems problematic, right? Mm -hmm. Let's fast forward. Let's fast forward uh, three months. Four months. Four months later. Moshe comes down from the heaven, he asks the question, he didn't get a good enough answer, at least in his mind, because four months later he asked the same question. What does he ask? Why do bad things happen to good people? And he says, Tzadik viralo, which means Tzadik is a righteous person, and Ra is bad, like Yetzir Ra, it's bad for him. Same question. Not about Robert Kiva particularly, but about the idea in general. And that's, once again, you know, Moshe, you asked the question already. Why would you ask the question only four months later? Right? Doesn't make sense. You asked the question. God said, quiet. This is the way I think, not the way you think. Right? And now he's asking the question again. What, you know what? God gives him a different answer. And the Almighty tells him, Tzadik viralo, a Tzadik, a righteous person that's bad for him, Tzadik she'en gamor. That's not, he's not completely righteous. So what does that mean? What it means is, is that a tzaddik who is not completely righteous, so that has a little, mostly righteous, but some, some little elements of wicked, well, they have to get punished for the wicked. And they have to get punished for the wicked, and therefore, he gets punished in this world. You get punished in pesos, not in dollars. You get punished so that your, your reward in the world to come will be perfect. 
This time it seems like a legitimate answer. That makes sense. If someone is righteous, but they have a little bit of non-righteous behavior that they need to rectify, well, it's better to rectify it in this world that's passing than have to rectify it in the next world, which is eternal. That's a good answer. So my question is like this. Moshe asks the same question twice, which in itself is problematic. And then Moshe gets different answers. The first time God says, no, don't ask questions. Be quiet. This is for me to, for me to calculate. And the second time, he gets the answer. He'll explain to you, well, this is a not righteous person, not completely righteous, therefore he has to get punished, let him get punished in this world. What's the deal? going with that. Very good. It's like this. Moshe got the same answer. He got the same answer to the same question. One time it made sense to him. One time it did not make sense to him. What was the question? Bad things happen to good people. Terrible things happen to fantastic people. Both times he got the same answer. Where is the reward for Rabbi Akiva? <coughs> Where is the reward for the righteous? What's the most rewarding thing that a righteous person can get? The most rewarding thing that a righteous person can get is the fact that their sins are atoned for in this world. So Moshe asked God, you showed me Rabbi Tiva's Torah. Now show me his reward. And he shows him being punished. And he shows him being brutally tortured. And Moshe doesn't understand. You're not, you're not answering the question. But God answered his question. He gave him a very correct answer. And the answer is that the best thing that can happen to someone is to have their sins absolved in this world. Why? Because the next world, the spiritual world, is so much more valuable, so much more important. This world's passing. Get it over with here. Where it's still cheap. But Moshe, he doesn't get it. He says, Zu Torah, Vizu Schara? This is the Torah. This is the reward? This is not reward. This is punishment. Moshe doesn't get it. This looks like punishment to him. And God says, you know what? You're right. Be quiet. This is not for you. This is the way I think. If you were able to think like God, it would make sense to you. Moshe, you, your reality, at this point in time, is not quite fully aligned. The physical world still has some sort of influence over you. If you were entirely spiritual, it would make sense. This is the way I think, not the way you think. Fast forward four months later. Moshe now got the Torah. He interceded on behalf of the Jewish people. He had totally got rid of any, any little bit of physicality. He transcended, he climbed the ladder, he's all the way at the top. He's in the ninth level of faith. He's really in the top of the food chain, so to speak, in faith. And now he asks the question again. He says, ah, I didn't understand it then, but I'm a greater person now. Now maybe I can understand it. So he asks the same question. And he gets the same answer. And this time it makes sense to him. This time it makes sense. Because if your reality was that the spiritual reality is so much more real than the physical reality, I'll give you guys an example. Let's try to, even this is not a perfect example. If someone's going to get fined, you're for sure going to get fined. 
You're going to get find a hundred. What could be the best blessing? What could be the best blessing to get if you have to get fined a hundred? That you get fined a hundred Zimbabwe dollars and not a hundred pounds of gold. Don't you think? Yeah? Wouldn't that be a wonderful blessing? Mm-hmm. Right? Because a hundred, hundreds of trillions of Zimbabwe dollars is like a quarter or a nickel. So if I said you, you're going to get fined a hundred. A hundred! No question. Wouldn't it be a blessing to get fined a hundred of Zimbabwe dollars versus a hundred pounds of gold? <coughs> Says Moshe to the Almighty, show me the reward of Rabbi Akiva. And he shows him being tortured. Hashem Yerach and Rabbi Akiva is being tortured. How is this an answer to the question? Moshe doesn't get it. Moshe doesn't get it. It doesn't make sense to him. He's being tortured. How is this a reward? Fast forward a little bit later. Moshe, suddenly he realizes, whoa, the spiritual, that's the gold. That's, that's where it matters. And the physical, that's, that, that's nothing. That's immaterial. That's not real. That's not lasting. You know, that's an afterthought. What could possibly be more rewarding than having to atone your sins in Zimbabwe dollars? Is there anything more rewarding? Now it makes sense then. He asked the question again, and this time it makes sense. So that's the answer to the question, by the way. When someone asks you why do bad things happen to good people, that's the Torah's answer. And that's a wonderful answer, but it doesn't work for us. Because we're a Moses. So logically, it could make sense, and we could say, oh yeah, of course it makes sense. But when we see someone getting tortured, we, we, can't, we don't see, this is not reward. Sorry. For us, it's not reward. We're way too low down on the ladder of faith for us to even think that that's reward. That, that looks terrible. For us, it's very, very hard to navigate this question because the correct answer is it makes sense, but what doesn't make sense to us? It doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to anyone who's on a lower level of faith. Because the only answer to this question of why terrible things happen to wonderful people is that they're gaining, they're getting, they're, they're getting their payment. They're getting their fine. They're having to pay their due. They're getting the penance in this world, which is a wonderful thing, theoretically. But in, in reality, we don't get it. And the Almighty tells us, quiet, you don't get it. This is the way I think. This is not the way you think. And the more spiritual we are, the more we're able to understand it. But we can never feel comfortable with this problem unless we're Moshe, unless we're Rabbi Akiva, unless we're someone who the physical reality is so low compared to the spiritual reality that it's a wonderful thing. What, what was Rabbi Tiva doing? Remember we talked about this last time. What's Rabbi Tiva himself doing while he's getting tortured? Can you imagine what would happen to us? God forbid if we were in such a situation. Where's God? Take care of me. I believed in you. I'm Rabbi Tiva. Why are you not sticking up for me? And what's Rabbi Tiva? Tiva's delighted. And he's saying the Shema. And he says to him, and he says to his students, say, what are you doing? He's saying to Shema, you're being tortured. He says, well, this is the happiest day of my life. Finally, I could fulfill a mitzvah that I wasn't able to fulfill. 
Rabbi Kiva, you're being tortured. Do you know what that means? Of course he knows what that means. But to him, he feels like he's getting off cheap. He's paying off his fine in Zimbabwe dollars. To him, at his level, he really understands why this is a blessing. He understands why this is the answer. This is the reward for his Torah. To him, it makes sense. To us, it's terrible. We can't imagine. So ironically, the answer to our question essentially makes sense logically, but we'll only feel comfortable with it you know, for the levels of Rabbi Tiva and Moshe. For us, when there's tragedy, we cry. And we mourn. When in reality, in the true reality, there's no difference between tragedy and happiness. They're both good. Everything mine does is for good. Everything. But in our world, the world that we live in today, when we see something bad happens, we have to accept God's anger and God's wrath. And we say, Baruch HaTashem, Diana Met, He's the righteous judge. In our mind, we, we, we suffer. We can't imagine. But the idea of faith opens the door on the higher levels for this making total sense. And so Rebekah himself, he, he couldn't be more delighted. How can you be delighted? Well, you can. If you really understand what's going on over here. And Moshe, well, depends. Moshe, at his earlier stages, he's baffled by it. Later on, he grows in his faith. Well, then it starts making sense to him. It, it makes sense. Well, if your spiritual really dominates, then it's trivial. The physical's trivial. So what you have in your, your, your skin flayed? It's trivial. It doesn't matter. It's trivial. It's Zimbabwe dollars. Who cares if you're getting fined? I'll pay $100,000 in Zimbabwe dollars. So what? Here's a penny. It covers it. It doesn't matter. It's trivial. For us, it's not, <laughs> not easy to say that. My body ain't trivial. It's important to me. It's who I am. It's my identity. Rebetiva? It's trivial. Moshe? Yeah, of course it made sense. So, essentially, the answer to this question really, ha- it, it's a reflection of an attitude, of an understanding, of a perception of faith. And indeed, for us, it's not going to be easy. To, it's not an easy question to answer. It's not. How can you answer such a question? You can answer it intellectually, but really to feel it, it's very painful. It's very hard for us to actually detach ourselves from what we actually feel. And we are still people that are primarily dominated by our physical. And the spiritual, that's that's an idea. That's a, a box we check. Hopefully it's a reality. It's Hopefully it impacts our behavior. Hopefully it's something that really is involved with us in a day-to-day life and becomes more and more real as we grow. But our physical is still dominant. We don't, we don't think of that as Zimbabwe dollars. We don't think of that as something trivial. It's, it's really important. It's more important. So it's, for us, it's going to be a very hard question. I want to quickly round up the, top, the rest of the, of the top nine before we finish. Um, so what, what else is there? You know, Once you have a level where the physical and that reality is entirely overshadowed by the spiritual reality. You're like Rabbi Akiva, like Moshe. Moshe's even higher. We'll see Moshe a little bit later on. Rabbi Zakai, what does he see? He sees a king. His eyes, physical <coughs> eyes see a general, but he sees a king. Uh-huh. 
Morada Kena. We'll get to we'll get to Abraham. Abraham is the next one after that. The next level is prophecy. Prophecy is where someone essentially neutralizes their physical to such a degree where their spiritual potential is unearthed. We gave the description last time. Essentially, the spiritual antenna that we have are there at all times. The reason why we cannot have a dialogue with God is not because God's not talking to us. It's because we're not receiving, because our physical qualities don't have receptors. Our spiritual do. The problem is that the physical is totally dwarfing and covering up in it, right? And making it inaccessible, the spiritual. As we grow the levels of faith, we shed one layer of physical after another, after another, after another. We reach this level where the physical is not there at all. All you have is a spiritual antenna, and voila, you're exposed to prophecy. Prophecy is what happens to someone whose physical reality does not dominate them. It's not there at all. All they have is a spiritual reality. The physical reality is almost entirely suppressed. And to the degree that their physical is less of reality, that is the degree that their spiritual is more, and thus their prophecy is more. So the greater the prophet, the weaker the influence that their physical body has on them. Has on them. And there's two levels higher. One of Abraham and one of Moses. Abraham is someone who made the spiritual realm, the Almighty, such a priority in his life and such a dominate, dominating factor in his life that nothing else had value. Nothing else mattered. Abraham pulled out his Talmud and he had a book called Avodah Zara and it looked like this. One book. Everything was, his, his laws of idolatry were so expansive, he had 400 chapters of the book of idolatry. Well, why? To Abraham, anything that's physical, anything that's not God, is idolatry. Abraham not only made God a priority, not only made God the top priority, Abraham made God the only priority. Anything else that has its priority, that's straight up idolatry. So that's not only neutralizing the physical, it's eliminating the physical almost entirely, where the physical has no value. It's all there. Yeah, this is a table, this is a chair, this is physical life. It's, it's not valuable at all. It has no value. The only thing that matters is God, and that's what the Akedah. What's the Akedah? Akedah, the binding of Isaac, is the ultimate test. God tells him, commit murder. How do you commit murder? Don't you have morals? No, Abraham had nothing besides for God. Abraham was willing to do something that's not kind, that's not smart, that's evil, right? That's essentially corrupting, destroying his legacy. Everything, nothing mattered besides for God. Nothing had its own platform besides for God. And even the things that were good were not valuable on their own. They're only valuable because of God. Why don't we murder? The reason why we don't murder is because to us murder is bad. The reason why Abraham didn't murder is because God told him murder is bad. Nothing has value aside from God. When God tells you murder, well then you murder straight up. No problem. Nothing has value aside from God. That's the only only factor. 
and there's Moses. The highest level of faith is that for Moses, not only was nothing ha- did nothing have value aside from God, nothing existed aside from God. There was nothing. nothing. The spiritual, the physical was not there at all. That's why Moshe was not bound at all by the constraints of the physical. We gave examples last week. We'll say them again quickly. In Moshe's world, nothing separated his soul. His body was not an influence on him whatsoever. Moshe's face shone like the sun. Why? Because his soul was totally exposed. There was no buffer. There's no barriers. There's nothing physical in his world. His body did not at, at all consume his, his soul. His soul was out there for everyone. He, people couldn't look at him. Moshe's prophecy was unadulterated, was uninterrupted. Was, it was what's called Aspaklaria Meira, the clearest prophecy, direct communication, in the middle of the day. He doesn't need a dream. Mamani tells us the four differences of the prayer of the prophecy of, of Moshe versus the prophecy of everyone else. Moshe is someone who's living in this world the same exact way a soul lives in Olamaba. No difference. No difference. The body is not at all a factor. It's not, it's not there even. He doesn't even need to reject it. He doesn't even need to put it in his book of, of, of idolatry. He doesn't need to make a big expansive book. He doesn't, it doesn't exist. He was a soul walking around with men. That's the highest level of, of faith where the, the, physical, the, the physical reality is entirely gone. There's nothing there. All it is, is is spiritual. Now, I want to make it very clear, if this wasn't clear to anyone till now, that level is unobtainable <laughs> for us. And I would say the top five levels are probably unobtainable for us as well. But either way, what's abundantly clear is that faith is not a, 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 a yay or nay proposition. It's not a one and done. It's not a yes or no question. There's an entire world out there of faith. Your whole life is a quest for faith. Your whole development in Judaism is about faith. Your whole growth is about faith. Everything, every mitzvah is about faith. It's there and there's room for us to grow in this area. It's not simple. It's not what the Gentiles call for sure. It's, 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 it's real. But there is a lot of room to, for, us to, for us to run. And hopefully this discussion has made that a likely outcome of our spiritual growth, and I uh, and look forward to continuing this subject uh, next time.